Thank you, everyone, for listening to our Stacking Growth podcast. What we have here is a two-part episode with Carl Ferrer and myself talking through the validity of variable comp plans for sales teams. This first part, which you're listening to now, is going to go through some of the myths out there on why variable compensation is necessary for sales teams. And then part two is where we take questions from our LinkedIn audience that people asked about this topic and we went through and we gave our perspective on those questions. We have enough material for maybe a part three in the future, but for now, enjoy part one and thanks for listening. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Stacking Growth. I'm here with Carl, this is Casty, and this is a long awaited episode where we're gonna discuss our 50-50 variable comp plans for sales teams dead. That's Carl's position. We're going to have a good discussion on this. Welcome to the show, Carl. How are you doing? I'm good. And you said I didn't say it was dead. I'm just saying that, you know, there's some challenges. So, yeah, it's a super uh, popular topic that uh, I threw a video out on LinkedIn to see kind of how, you know, the network and the market would react. And there was a lot of um, awesome thoughts thrown back at me. And uh, it's definitely a, a, a wild idea that um, I didn't think was so wild. And for those of you who don't know, the, the idea I threw out on LinkedIn was that uh, it's it's actually not an idea. It's it's what we do at Refine Lab. So we pay our sales team 100% um, salary. So it's, it's not a 50-50 variable. Um, they're not split between their base and then uh, basically a, a performance incentivized second half to their salary. They are guaranteed their salary like anyone else in, in any organization. And um, it's a high salary. So we benchmark it off of, um, you know, appropriate for our industry and ACV, et cetera. But it comes out to a, an extremely competitive enterprise SaaS OTE. Um, and... We did this for a number of reasons, but you know, just just that concept in general just uh, caught a lot of attention uh, on LinkedIn, to to say the least. So I thought we could just debunk some myths because I've learned a number of things. What are we, Cassie? Like six months or nine months into this, I guess you could call it an experiment. And I've learned a bunch of things. I think there's pros and cons to it, and I've learned that there's a bunch of myths too, kind of around comp in general that. I'm sort of excited to vaporize, you know? Yeah, let's let's go through the myths. And then we have a bunch of questions from folks uh, on LinkedIn on the back of your wonderful walk and talk video yeah. that you posted. And we can get into maybe, you know, you bring in back the walk and talk, which, I'm, which I think is cool. It's kind of like you've gone 2020 LinkedIn retro sales guy. Um, but I digress. Let's get back to the topic at hand. So yeah, let's go through these myths. Um, and then we'll go through some Q&A. So why don't we start with the, the first one, Carl? And that is, we can't do this because, you know, we're taking money out of the salesperson's pocket. These top performer, performing reps make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maybe they make millions of dollars. Sales, sales teams in general make a lot of money. That's the myth. So if we move to yeah. a plan where it's just a, you know, a good salary, but no upside, um, we're taking money out of the salesperson's pocket. True? False? Yeah. You know, I definitely, I, I, I felt that way back in the day. Like if I, if, if five years ago you were to tell me like, Carl, one day you're going to make a, you know, a high full salary in your sales role. Like I would have laughed at you. Like that's crazy because I believed that I was going to make a whole lot of money if I was an overperformer. Well, it was a myth that I believed at the time. And for me personally, it was like, well, I continued to go like one year after another in sales and continued to overperform. I was a rising star at HubSpot, which is basically their, their rookie of the year award. I went to President's Club that year. I was top performing, top one percenter at previous sales orgs before my time at HubSpot. And I started to realize like, man, where's my money? Like, I don't actually make that much, right? Your average OTE at HubSpot is, you know, 160K or something like that. And like when you overperform and go to President's Club, you still might not break 200K, you know? And so it's like, there's this myth that like, if you overperform, you are like swimming in cash. And it's really not. And overperforming like, 
takes a lot of time, you know, like to hit a hundred percent of your plan, you know, might take 40, 50 hours a week to go 200% of your plan is now we're talking, you know, 10 hour, 12 hour days, long weekends, you're taking stressful salescations, right? The sales version of a vacation where you're still squeezing in demos on the beach to, 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 to not make 160 K, but to make 205 K it's like, the juice isn't worth the squeeze all the time. So it's like, what's the difference between in your lifestyle between 160 or 205, you know, especially after Uncle Sam takes his cut. It's like, there's, I think there's just this myth that like, if you overperform, you're making half a million dollars and it's just not true. RepView also shows that most reps don't even hit 100% of their quota, right? So in, in the enterprise segment, which is the one that I follow most closely, it's the one that kind of we fall in right at Refine Labs, your average seller, 46% uh, of salespeople are hitting their number in the enterprise segment. 46, so 53% of the sales team is not even making their OTE. They're making less than their OTE. They're not hitting any accelerators and their lives are miserable because they feel like losers because they're not hitting their quota, right? So it's just like, Again, the myth that you articulated to salespeople making all this money. Of course, is there the Jordan Belfort of your organization, probably? The, you know, the top one or two reps ringing the cash register? Sure. There's a lot of other awesome reps overperforming that are bringing home average 150K, 160, 180. Um, and, and so it's just like, you know, and is that a lot of money? Of course. Like, these are first world problems, right? Like, that's, those are, that's a great life. But it's just a myth that like everybody's just like just these huge stacks of cash for overperforming salespeople all the time. And it's just not the case. So where does the myth come from? And so like if I think about what you just said, you know, forty six percent of reps, half the reps don't hit quota in what's called enterprise sales. But yep. yet they're sold on this idea that, you know, they can come in and make a ton of cash. So like is this just management pulling the wool over their eyes? Is it uh, the entire kind of cottage industry here is delusional? Like, where does this kind of come from? Yeah, I, you know, I can I can kind of guess at where it's come from in my own experience. Um, yeah, I think you're sold really well by recruiters, by senior sales leaders. Um, you know, they give you the customer. It's, it's just like how a SaaS company might give you like the customer story of like their highest performing customer ever. You know, I think salespeople kind of get, uh, I don't want to say tricked, but they don't, they're not given the whole story, right? And so they're given kind of the case study around the one or two salespeople that just absolutely murder their number. And they're not given any of the details though. You know, you're not told that that salesperson literally works nights and weekends. You're not told that that salesperson was one of the first salespeople at the organization. And so they own like all the best accounts and they actually own San Francisco and New York and Manhattan, you know, like there's those details that are left out. Now, is that always the case? No, I don't want to like, you know, there's top, they, they work hard, I'm sure. Right. Um, but you're not given all the details. And so you've got this big lottery ticket that's kind of dangled in front of you. Like, man, if they can do it, you got to remember it's playing to my personality too. I'm a seller, I'm type A, right? I can do anything that I set my mind to. So I'm like, if that, if Cassidy can do it, I can do it. No one would ever stop me from doing that. And then you kind of hit a harsh reality once you get into these roles sometimes, because you're like, dang, they manage all the best. They have the best install base in the company. They have San Francisco. I have Nebraska. Like this is different. There's a different, <laughs> right? The hand I was dealt was slightly different. Um, you know, and so it's, uh, you just, you know, I think that's where the myth comes from. We're just sold and we are easily sold as salespeople that dream. Um, and so we're a little bit, uh, what would be the word gullible, I guess, to it. And there historically hasn't been a lot of transparency. Organizations like RepView are pretty new. And so historically I didn't have anything to benchmark against. I, I wasn't active on LinkedIn, so I couldn't just ping my buddies and be like, yo, is this a bunch of BS or is this real, right? There wasn't benchmarking. It was like, I really had to take the VP sales and the recruiter's word for it. I could maybe look on Glassdoor seven years ago and get some sparse information. But again, it's like a cesspool on Glassdoor. You're like, is, this, is these just disgruntled, sucky sales reps? 
that weren't making any money. You just don't know. So you stepped into these situations not really knowing, just kind of believing that the people you were interviewing with had your best intentions in mind. And, uh, you know, you step into these scenarios that aren't uh, everything that they were necessarily, you know, grass isn't as green as maybe you thought it was. And the product is a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little more vapor than product. You know, there's just a lot of unknowns that you're just stuck with once you get hired. You don't want to be the job hopper. So now you're locked into this for 12 months at least so that you don't harm your own resume, et cetera. So I don't want to ramble here, but there's, I think that's why we were sold on that. And uh, I think the tides are turning. So because of transparency and, uh, and into everything, products, leadership, and things like rep, view, and comp. We all know what we make now. We all know what top performers make. We all know how many people are actually in reality top performers. And it's a lot different than what we thought it was, you know, five, 10 years ago when there wasn't this transparency. So myth number one, uh, sales folks, uh, don't crush it in, in the context of being, you know, getting, getting wealthy and rich um, yeah. on the back of this. They make good money. But not great yep. money. They get sold kind of uh, this story that half of them don't achieve. And even as you outline, when you do exceed your quota, um, the upside is likely fairly limited in terms of like earnings potential outside of maybe the top one or two folks in a company. Fair to say? Yeah, fair to say. And, and it depends on your industry too, right? Like, again, you could have an, a seller that sells into SMB and mid-market and they're just like a awesome salesperson, but the ACV doesn't support a very high salary in general, right? And so, again, it's just like, this is maybe another myth we'll get into where like top performers would never take a full salary role. And that's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's just that. It's a myth. So the, the second thing I wanted to cover on the list of myths is this idea that these variable comp plans are actually good for the company. Yeah. Um, you outlined this idea that this notion that, you know, 50% of the time a rep doesn't hit their quota. What's this mean for the performance of the company? Does this mean the company is not hitting their revenue goals? So, so should we assume that 50% of the companies aren't hitting their revenue goals because their sales teams aren't hitting the quota? Or is there something else going on here? How would you kind of characterize the value of this uh, compensation plan on the performance of the company? Yeah, unfortunately, I actually don't think they're necessarily connected uh, because you could have a company could be hitting their revenue targets and you still have half the sales team missing their targets. We see this in, 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 in our marketing conversation sometimes, right? Where like marketing is hitting their lead gen numbers, but the sales team is still missing their quota. Um, I think you get the same thing because you get this top-down forecasting, right? So the CEO wants to grow $5 million this year, and that's what the, the board of directors wants you know, out of this investment, out of the company. And so the CEO passes that to the VP sales or the CRO. They're like, okay, well, if we need to hit $5 million, we better make it $7 million, right? So we can overperform. And that, as, that, as that number keeps going, the sales managers are like, okay, shoot, we better do 7.5 just to make sure that people aren't saying. By the time the number gets to the salesperson, it's like, we're not trying to add 5 million this year. We're trying to add 10. And so you get half of your team that misses quota because it's not realistic. But the company hit because they did get to 50% of the 10 million. They got to five. So the board is happy, but half the sales team is miserable. And you know what? Unfortunately, Cassidy, I, you know, it depends on how you look at the math. You got, you hit your revenue number and you paid, you know, a bunch of salespeople, not a lot of money, you know, from a CAC perspective that actually feels unfortunately like a good deal. You got a bunch of great activity, great revenue, great deals, and you paid a bunch of salespeople 20% more than their base, right? You promised them 200K OTE. Most of them came in around 130K for the year and in actual earnings. That unfortunately, in a really dark and twisted way, feels positive uh, for the CFO. Um, but that's not factoring in the real cost of that kind of churn and burn type of culture. You know, it's very expensive to recruit salespeople. And now today, Cassie, the word gets out on these organizations. There are, there's a hit list of organizations that most salespeople would never go work for because we know the truth, right? There's all kinds of dark social and back channel intel on companies that wasn't available before. So I think it's going to catch up with companies, but unfortunately, historically, I think it was 
It was a part of it. Hire 50 salespeople or 100. Forecast the fact that 50 of them won't be here in 12 months. That's fine. We're not going to hardly pay them anything. And we're still going to use that those the hamsters right to generate the revenue that we want. And as a company, we're going to hit our number uh, more affordably than than we would have you know maybe if we actually paid fair market OTEs to our sellers with with you know quotas that were actually attainable. I don't know. You you've seen you're, you you've been that leader kind of at the top. Have you seen that or experienced that or is that kind of how I think about that? Is that do you feel like that's an accurate assessment of kind of the current state of how forecasts and quotas are kind of cascaded down unfortunately i think you're right i mean and i'm going to play this back because i think it's an important point you made and that is a company's target is five million in your example the senior leadership cfo ceo cro they understand that 50 percent of the reps are going to miss their quota so they build uh incentive structure to hit 10 million knowing they're only going to achieve half of that in order to hit the goals of the company and so what you're outlining here is like kind of a malicious intent to underpay salespeople by hitting it, by setting a target that's unrealistic because we know there's not the demand generated by the sales team or the marketing team to hit 10 million. And nobody's expecting that. They're only expecting half of that. And the sales team doesn't know that because that information is not shared. Nobody's saying our target for the company is 5 million, but if you add up all our uh, quota attainment for the sales team, it would be 10. Nobody's ever going to say that in an all hands call, um, or to the sales team. And so, I mean, to me, I don't, I get that this is how the game's played, but it feels like math, massively unethical in terms of doing this. Cause you're, you're selling, nobody's selling the sales team on the fact that only half of you are going to hit your target. Like when you think about like the risk reward of taking these jobs, um, you know, they're selling the art of the possible that you're going to hit this target when half of you won't. Well, and they're they selling that dream. They, yeah, they sell, sell the dream and then they set the targets artificially high right. because they know this is like a giant Ponzi scheme in some ways and maybe to your point, like a good way to get cheap labor. Yeah, it's definitely cheap labor and then you know what? Two of the top reps that you sacrificed everything to to... to to get the job done, which is awesome. Good for them. They're, they're top reps. They've earned that, you know, that's that their stories are then sold to the next cohort of reps when half the sales org recycles and quits or gets fired. And then you bring in a whole new fresh batch of new hires and they continue to sell, you know, Tony and Meredith's success. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's malicious is a strong term, but uh, you, you know, that's, I can't think of a better one. <laughs> um, but I think you bring up an important point around just like, does this really healthy for an organization? You know, if you look at like, for instance, if you go to RepView and you look at the, the organizations that have like the best scores and the highest quota attainment. So we're talking about 80 and 90% of the team are hitting their quota. There's one thing that's really striking to me. It's that they're all very mature companies. It's like Salesforce, HubSpot, uh, Miro, CrowdStrike, Amazon, Google Cloud. So it also makes you wonder like, okay, if these smart, mature companies who have dominated their categories and made it, arguably made it when it comes to like business, you know, um, if they're doing it this way and most of their team is hitting quota, I, what, what, I, what I don't understand, and I don't have an answer here, is why the younger companies and the startups don't attempt to follow in their footsteps to be like, man, most of these teams are hitting quota. Okay, they have enablement, robust enablement teams. They have good cultures of coaching, etc. Why don't more of these reps you know, or these companies follow suit? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe they just... You just can't forecast, right? You're talking about a, a product that's like, you know, pre-product market fit maybe or just hit product market fit. We've guessed at our, at our TAM largely just to raise money. We don't really know like what the opportunity is that lies ahead of us. So we can't even correctly – maybe startups actually aren't malicious. They just – there's no mechanism for actually doing this accurately. And so the sales rep at the end of the day pays the price for that learning experience for the company. I, I don't know. You know, I'm trying to – you know, assume good intent here, but you know. let's let's bring down the the 
the potential lovers. One is they're malicious. We already talked about that. I would like yeah. to assume most aren't. Two is they don't actually understand how to like structure the sales team, use comp effectively tied to a revenue plan. Like this might not understand this mechanism or not do it well. And or maybe their enablement and kind of development of the team is lacking. All those examples that you gave, tremendous sales leadership, kind of wrote the playbook on enterprise sales. Um, so it's very good at what they do. And maybe these startups just don't have that level of maturity. Three, the product's not very good. You're not a category leader. Um, yeah. You're building something nobody really wants. It's a nice to have. Whereas the examples you gave are all companies who are category leaders on the back of you know, strong technology. And fourth is maybe your marketing team is no good. So the examples yep. you gave all have world-class marketing organizations and yep. in addition to category leading products, in addition to very strong sales teams. So, yep. you know, four reasons right there. And I think to your point, being malicious is probably a minority, not being able to run an efficient sales organization. Yeah, I'd probably say that happens a lot in early stage companies. And then your product and marketing teams aren't where they need to be. And yeah. those four things are kind of a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I always feel bad for the salespeople. You know, like you need, you know, you know the G two grids that like show all the people in a category, and uh, you see everybody in the top right corner. And I'm like, man, imagine the salespeople that are like on on like the bottom left of the quadrant. Like they have to sell this software. They probably have the same quota as me. I used to think about this at HubSpot. You know, HubSpot's like top right corner. I was like. These, these random CRMs and marketing automation companies that I've never heard of. It's like, there's a salespeople with the same quota as me trying to do that at one of these companies. I'm almost, Cassidy, I'm almost like, they might be a better salesperson than, than I am. Like, could I go sell like the 50th place CRM? I, you know, like it really, um, and that's one, this is a tangent, but one of the things I always tell like new sellers is like the number one thing that you can do the, the best thing that you can do for your career, for your sales career, is find a category that matters in a company that is leading that category. Because, like, man, I don't like culture, like your boss, like all those things are great. They're secondary. Like you can make up for that stuff. You can have a sucky sales manager and a horrible culture. But if you have an awesome product, you're going to make money and you're going to set yourself up for like a stair step to maybe an, another company that has a good product and has all the other good things. But I always wonder like, am I really like a good, you can be a top salesperson at HubSpot. Uh, would you be a top salesperson at some other random CRM that's super half-baked? I just feel bad for those sellers. They have like the same quota as me and <laughs> they sell vaporware, you know? It's uh, it's kind of a, an interesting thought experiment to think through, but um, it's a bummer because it's like they probably think that they're a loser and they suck at sales because they never hit their quota. But really, if they were put in the right environment, they could thrive because I'm always looking for salespeople that come from difficult selling environments because they come into an, a, a, a situation like Refine Labs where it's like strong product, awesome team, great services, great marketing. It's like it's a dream come true. You know, it's like a video game, like on easy mode, you know, it's so much better and everything works so much more frictionless. It's like, this is what a proper organization actually functions like, or product and marketing and sales and senior leadership actually work together. Like, this is a good business. Unfortunately, I think most businesses just aren't, aren't actually good businesses. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this is a really good insight and that is, it's important insight for anybody a marketer, a salesperson, a product person, you want to be in a company that is set up to be successful. Um, and by looking into that upper right-hand part of the quadrant, um, that's a good indicator. However, if your comp is variable, it just raises the, the urgency that you, you better really pick somebody that yep. you're betting on the horse. You need to bet on the horse yep. if your comp is variable. Otherwise, you're going to end up being a underpaid salesperson fighting a good fight against market leaders and you're not going to win. Yeah. And sacrificing a huge portion of your life and your mental health, you know, like this, when you don't have a good product and you don't have good marketing, it's like the, the seller pays the price with their blood, their sweat, their tears, their sleep, their mental health, your family suffers. 
because you're you're short with them and harsh because you're always stressed out. There's a huge cost that unfortunately sellers shoulder um, in those environments. You know, when you really so, think when you really think about what you just outlined, it's like a a double it's like a double punch. First, yeah. you're working hard to try to reach a a quota attainment that's probably not realistic. So you're already working your ass off. Yeah. Then you don't have the product or the marketing team to support you in doing that. So you're working even harder. So now yeah. you're, you got two strikes against you and you're working your tail off. And to your point, you're stressed, you're miserable, nobody wants to be around you. And you're likely not going to be bringing home uh, the earnings that you expect either. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and what, Cassidy, another point that I thought of too, is like, what about like how all of that, 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 that mix that you just described, like sounds horrifying, but that even further anchors you because now all of your sales behaviors are going to reflect that state of mind. So you're just desperate scarcity mindset. All of that flows then. I've been talking about how the salesperson pays for this, but who actually ultimately pays for it even further down. The customer, the customer success team, you know, so there's even further like flow that this sewage like flows down to. It's like a huge uh, just like domino effect of pain and agony. And I think that's why like so many startups don't make it. They can't control, you know, this uh, this flow and uh, they don't know where to kind of you know, stop it or damn it or whatever. I don't know. This is a nasty image here I've created. I apologize to our listeners, but it's what it feels like at some of these orgs I can imagine. So anything to get the deal done and then toss it over the wall and the success and product teams will figure it out. I've been there. I've been there where I just like, I have to pay my mortgage this month. I'm not going to make it. I have to say what I need to say. And that's ugly. That's like my first sales job. It's, it's ugly, but it's like, I'm human. At the end of the day, it's like I have to feed my family and I need deals. And these deals are not going to close themselves. Nobody actually wants this. The market didn't ask for this. I have to do what it takes now for myself um, to make sure that I can survive. And so, yeah, it's a really ugly scenario. That's definitely on the apocalyptic end, but I don't think that's as uncommon as yeah. people probably think that it is. I agree. Well, I think we beat that myth up pretty good. Um, Let's shift uh, directions and go to the next one. That is, Carl, the top sellers would not be motivated without a huge variable comp to chase. What do you say to that? Yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, it, like, okay, so is your finance team not motivated? Is the product team not motivated? Marketing? The, you know, like, every, you know, every, no one is paid like sales is paid in an organization, and nobody would ever challenge the motivation of those other departments, the development team, like those guys and gals work very, very hard to ship products. Um, and they have processes and frameworks, a very buttoned up, you know, organization um, in most, in most, in, in many SaaS companies, maybe not all of them, but it's like, you say those people aren't motivated. It also assumes another thing that I think is kind of ugly Cassidy, which is that like salespeople are primarily only motivated by money. Like, and of course, that's a part of it, right? But we're actually motivated, at least I am and kind of my cohort of, of my network. A lot of us are not motivated primarily by money. That's great. We're, primarily, we're motivated by other things that maybe you know, money might afford for us, like freedom, like remote work, etc. So there's a lot of other ways that you can comp someone that actually hit at what they're actually motivated by. When you see a lot of like the hustler mindset in sales, which... Do whatever you want with your time. I'm not knocking this persona of seller. But you you don't see a lot of like parents in that category. You know, you don't see a lot of like later career salespeople in that category. So appealing to only that hustler type of seller, you probably are going to get uh, or limit yourself to actually a smaller talent pool. And these are typically single folks earlier career and that's just where they're at in their life they just they just want to work and that's that's awesome like that's a great place to be i was like that too earlier in my career um but i think you actually limit yourself to a larger pool of talent that is very experienced um that can do 
what a 22 year old might do in 60 hours. Yeah, I can do in 35, you know, it's just a different access to talent. But when you push that hustler kind of culture, I think you actually sort of like scare people away. And we're also experienced enough to know that like, yeah, you can dangle that carrot of that big variable in front of me. I know it's bullshit, you know? So that lottery ticket doesn't also entice me because I already know, I already been there, done that. I've been behind that, you know, um, I've chased that carrot for a decade. Uh, and it's, it's not a very fat carrot. It's not a very juicy one. You know, it's, it sucks a lot of times. And I'm, I haven't, you know, it's been five years since I caught the carrot, you know, whatever. So, um, to say that top sellers again, aren't going to be motivated is, is, is really very silly. Um, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. What I don't get is that, as you pointed out, this is the only organization in the company with this type of compensation plan. And underlying that is this notion that for whatever reason, this cohort of people are only motivated by money. Whereas yet you'll see developers working 50, 60 hours a week. I know when I was in my twenties, I was working 70, 80 hours a week as a consultant. Yeah. Marketers work hard. Finance people work hard to your point. Like, later in your career, maybe you don't have to work 60 hours a week because you know something. But when yeah. you're young, you're going to have to work hard. But for yep. whatever reason, all these other organizations have young, talented people working hard, motivated by other factors, uh, personal success, company success, the ability to learn fast and get ahead. But yet, this cohort of salespeople, they don't care any about any of that stuff. We got to motivate them by using money as like the stick. So yeah. it's kind of odd. Um, behavior actually, yeah. when you think about it. Yeah, it is, it's very odd. And another thing is like an experienced seller will also like look at risk, right? I look at like a 50-50 variable and I'm like, I, I'm like, I feel like I'm too experienced and too valuable to an organization to have to adopt that kind of risk. You know, like why would, why am I the one adopting that risk? You know, like 50, I only get 80K as my base. Um, and I have to trust that your product is legit and that you have proper enablement in place. Like I know as an experienced seller, like I'm going to do my job, but I also know that that like I can be as awesome as of a seller as possible. I know that this is a largely a team effort at the end of the day to do this. Well, like the product has to be there. Marketing has to be there. RevOps needs to make sure they're carving territories properly. There's a lot of things outside of my control An early career seller might not realize, right? Cause they're sold. Everything is in your control. Just be an owner and learn everything you can and you're going to crush your quota. And like a later career salesperson would be like, no, any, any, any later career salesperson is going to tell you like a lot of sales is outside of your control. You know, we just faced this. We're facing this this year, right? With like this tumultuous economic climate. You realize in these scenarios how little control you really have over stuff. A seasoned seller is going to know that. They're going to be like, whatever. You can say all the things you want about how great you are. But a lot of the sale is outside the control of the seller. And it's like, why would I, as a seasoned seller that can bring a lot of value to a company, adopt all the risk of that by taking a, a base pay of 60K? That's, 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 not, that's not logical. No, the company should adopt the risk. I should get 150K base or a full salary and then, you know, bonus on top of that, or like, this is this weird concept of why does the salesperson adopt all that risk? I don't know the answer to that, but nobody else adopts that risk, right? If product doesn't ship a, a feature on time because they dropped the ball, like there's no risk to them. Oh, okay. Well, it's going to come next quarter. The sales team <laughs> now adopted that risk because all the, the roadmap that they have promised is now pushed to 2023 and now they're screwed, right? Um, and you know, so it's just odd, like, I guess this concept of like risk adoption and why is it that salespeople willingly adopt all that risk when they don't control any of the levers or, or many of the levers, right? What levers does a salesperson control? The contents of a sales conversation. And it's basically it. the things that they say in the very, very tiny sliver of time that they get to spend with a buyer. That's all they control are the words that are communicated in that tiny, tiny window. It's crazy. You know, it's like we haven't really rethought this as a, I don't know, as a B2B community in that yeah. this may have made sense 15 or 20 years ago. If you think about the world back then, um, 
it was hard to get information. Companies had a lot of power. They're doing a massive amount of education. As a buyer, we weren't going on the internet or social media to learn about others. And so your salesperson had to go out and like, you know, quote, pound the pavement, meet people, build relationships, sell the company, sell the vision, get them into the buying cycle, close the deal. Like they were doing this end to end. And so I can see back in those days when sales was arguably the marketing team and the sales team yeah. driving, driving and capturing and generating demand and revenue for your company that you would want to incent them to be out there doing that, you know, dirty work, which is hard to do and not pleasant with um, the ability to, to earn a lot. But like, that's not the world we live in today. Um, yeah, and I think too, what's interesting about the SaaS world is I, I feel like that comp plan also was birthed from this idea, like smaller businesses, right? You think of like door to door, like there is not really cash flow running through these businesses. Like the only cash happened when an order was placed, right? So I sell alarms door to door or Bibles door to door or whatever, right? Um, Cutco knives, whatever it is, right? Bug repellent. It's like, okay, I get that I'm paid after I get money from the customer. Like that, that actually makes sense potentially financially from a cash flow perspective with smaller businesses, but a SaaS company that just, that like the margins are, you know, infinite, right? Essentially. Uh, and you just raised like $50 million from some VC. It's like the kids, the cash flow is not actually the issue. And so it's like, we've adopted something that actually financially or from an accounting perspective probably maybe made sense back in the day to today where it's like that it's actually irrelevant from an accounting perspective. I don't know. I feel like there's something there as well as to kind of how we got here. We've never really challenged why is this built the way it is. So really good point. And um, I, you know, we, we often say B2B marketing is stuck and haven't you know b2b marketers haven't changed or innovated in the last 15 or 20 years and we know that's true and there's a better and different way to market today but you're bringing up a point of like maybe b2b sales is stuck as well and that yeah. this behavior is actually causing companies more harm than good in terms of their performance and no one's really kind of asked that question until you kind of brought this up and that is yeah it's not great for the seller, but this could be detrimental actually to the company these days. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, com yeah, I completely agree. I, I don't think we have the measurement framework in place to do the math properly. You know, like I don't think we've really counted the cost of sending bad deals to customer success, right? Churn, etc. Like we don't really factor in like churn numbers and stuff like that, like hides, like the cost of recruiting a salesperson and ramping them up like those costs don't hit like a balance sheet, you know? So it like it hides under the carpet of uh, the financial carpet of an organization. And I think, um, you know, if we actually had a way to properly measure this, like what is the cost of our turnover? What is our turnover costing us? What does ramp cost us? You know, it takes six, nine months to really get a salesperson up to full productivity. What does that cost us? I don't think we really know what that caught churn. Like churn is just, just an interesting metric because it just kind of hides and it's just like high level percentages. But do we ever calculate like what if we didn't churn this many customers and we were able to reduce quotas so that salespeople like reverse engineer some of this math, like what would we actually gain as a company? What if we overpaid 20 salespeople instead of hiring 40 and instead of focusing on more salespeople, more volume, more activity, we focused more on coaching. We reduced uh, sales teams, right? One manager to 10 salespeople, it's too much, right? What if we had one sales leader to three or to four? There's so many other ways, I think, to slice up how teams are done. I think if you focused on like rep productivity um, more than just these huge aggregate numbers that are, that are funneled up to the board, you would find a lot of opportunity for optimization that would that would result in millions of dollars uh, either generated or saved or not wasted, et cetera. Same exercises that we do with the marketing teams that come and talk to us. You know, they look at like these blended metrics, like, oh, marketing programs do pretty good overall. We spend like a million bucks a year and we get out, you know, 
800K in ARR. And it's just like, yeah, but it's like 10% of your marketing actually generates that. Why are you wasting all this other 80%? Same thing, I think, happens under the carpet of sort of like the sales org and, and just kind of the financial ugliness that happens there with, the, with those teams. So I don't know. Is that... Do you feel like does that resonate? Does that we're on the right track there? Or yeah, and I think yeah. if you if you think about our company and the way we're structured, the majority of our demand comes inbound. Right. So from a measurement framework, it is very um, structured and precise. We know what's coming in. We know how it converts to the pipeline. We know how many salespeople we need to facilitate that demand coming in. We can look at efficiency and what we need to do there. We can look at CAC and cost structure and compare that to what we book in revenue. And so when you think about a model, it is very clear. And I think to your point, like the discipline or the detail is not that clear when you think about kind of most organizations who, you know, have a mix of inbound and outbound and, um, you know, maybe the majority of their business is coming outbound and they haven't done the due diligence to build a framework and a model that actually makes sense sense and can help them kind of predict kind of performance in sales teams, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm sure somebody out there has yeah. done it, but it's just, it just, I feel like this is a lacking conversation in the market. I don't hear much talk about this. It's a black box, you know, and I think it goes back to this, like, how do we calculate CAC? You know, like we calculate our CAC, you and I have gone through that exercise like some of these SaaS orgs, it's like, have you, do you calculate all that HR, all that recruiting, all that time, uh, ramp, et cetera, into your, into your CAC? Or are you just like, you know, I think a lot of times it's like, we've got these rose colored glasses on and it's like, oh, our CAC is great. It's like, is it, what, what, how are you doing the math in that calculation? Are you counting the five recruiters and the agencies that are recruiting and all the time it takes to do all this? Like that is millions upon millions of dollars profitability wouldn't be so difficult of a thing for SaaS companies to achieve if they really, you know, fine tooth combed through every little thing. I don't know why they do that. I think my hypothesis is that they, did, they haven't had to because there's been so much capital, excess capital that's flowed into these businesses. Profitability is something that's not a priority or historically hasn't been. So whatever. Light cash on fire, grow. Growth at all costs is all that matters. So I think we will start to see more of these conversations begin to happen as, uh, you know, venture-backed, high-growth uh, SaaS companies or tech companies begin to, you know, be required to do more with less. I, I'm hoping that more of these conversations will happen and maybe we'll get better models to more accurately, um, you know, calculate what is the true cost to do business, what's the true cost to acquire a customer, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I do think um, these companies will be scrutinized more. And I think there's two there's two sides to this equation historically. I think one is what you've said. There's been a lot of money and the focus on profitability hasn't been required. And at the same time, you want to prop up a calculation like CAC in order to get more money. So you may not be yeah. using CAC to actually run an efficient revenue operation. You may be looking at CAC as a way to kind of justify the next round of funding. So you don't really want to stuff a bunch of actual costs in there to, to acquire customers. Um, you just want to do the bare minimum in order to make that number look good so you can get your next round of funding, so you can yep. put that in your coffers and so forth and so on. So, yeah, um, it's a vicious cycle. And there's not a good, you know, the SaaS, we're, we're solving this for demand gen and, and revenue in general um, with our portfolio of companies, but, um, and the problem that we're solving is a standardization of these, of these metrics, the infrastructure necessary to measure these things properly. Um, sales has frameworks, product has frameworks, right? We've talked about this ad nauseum. Uh, marketing doesn't have these frameworks. And I think also, you know, company like CAC doesn't have a standard, like everyone calculates that slightly differently. So I think that hopefully we see some standardization and benchmarking and some research done that comes out uh, that helps, you know, companies to better understand not only what their own CAC is, but is it any good compared to other companies that are trying to achieve the same outcomes that we're trying to achieve, et cetera. So it's just a lot of issues there that I'm, I'm hoping that we see resolved in the next, you know, over the next few years. So let's hit our last um, myth and then we'll kind of open it up for questions, which we got a lot of questions on LinkedIn. So we'll go through that. So last myth is this idea that if you were to move away from variable comp structure, 
you would not be able to attract top talent. Yeah, huge myth. Our team is filled with top talent, uh, so it's already a myth uh, here at Refine Labs. Um, another thing, too, is, again, it's like we said this before, it assumes that top talent is attracted by variable comp, right? Um, and I don't think that that's true. Now, would this comp, could, would Refine Labs probably uh, attract the Jordan Belfort, the Grant Cardone of some enterprise cybersecurity firm? No, it wouldn't, right? Would it attract a, the whole other 60% of awesome salespeople? It's, it's almost like there's just chess beating that happens in sales where it's like, if you're not at 900% of your quota, you're a loser. And it's just like, is 110% to quota, 120% to quota not outstanding? Especially when 40% of your sales team hits their number? Like, is that not a top performer? I feel like there's like this tribalism that kind of happens. It's a little bit of this bullying that happens in sales where if like you're not the number one rep, like you're a loser and you suck at sales. And it's just not true. It's a ton of reps at every company that hit 105% of their number, 110, 120, 130. They go to P Club but they're not the one percenter, does that mean that they're not a good rep? Of course not. It's, it's ridiculous, right? It's like, it's like saying like, it's like saying, oh, only if you win the Olympic gold, are you a good swimmer? Are you kidding me? Even the swimmers that didn't make the Olympics, that qualified to go to the Olympic qualifiers, I, I would take them, Cassidy, on my swimming team. You know what I'm saying? Like, those are world-class swimmers. So I don't know why it's like only Michael Phelps is the only good swimmer. It's like, all of the people that he has destroyed over his career are still absolutely stellar swimmers. So we just have to change like, you know, how, what we, how we define top. I have no doubt that as soon as we decide to put a job wreck out there for, let's say, a 200K or 215K base salary to work with a company like Refine Labs, to learn from an average sales manager like Carl Ferreira, Right to be led by Cassidy Shield to work with Chris to work and be on the cutting edge of of revenue R and D, there would be a line out the door for something like that, and those would all be stellar salespeople looking to level up their careers and make a lot of money. You know, um, this is again, yeah, I'm, just, I'm obviously passionate about this one point because it's really annoying, uh, but it's 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 a myth. It's a stupid myth. It really is. <laughs> I'd like to add to that too, and that is because of the way the sales profession is structured, there's a whole number of people, you could argue the majority of talented people not going into sales. And so if you think about the example in our company, we have an AE on our team who's a director of demand gen, you know, six months ago. And so, you know, in our world, his skill sets highly transferable and important for the sales process. Yeah. He's absolutely crushing it. I mean, obviously as a you know, sales leader, you're helping him on sales skills, et cetera, et cetera. But on domain knowledge, um, he's off the charts. And that's really what customers want today is when they want to get on the phone with somebody who's knowledgeable, can help them through a buying process, they can build confidence and trust and that they, that they know the subject matter, that they know their business, they know their function, Etc. And so when you think of kind of like the evolution of the sales profession, I would argue we want to see more people like this person in these roles, people who aren't traditionally sellers, selling and being the ambassador for your company on the front lines of prospects and customers. But they're not going to do that in this comp model. No. To go from being a director of demand gen making X and going home to tell your wife and your family, hey, I got this new role in sales and my base comp's going to be cut, you know, 30, 40, 50%, but I could make maybe 15% more if I crush it and work my ass off and nights and weekends. Like, those yeah. types of people are not going to do that. Yeah, they're not. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You access an entire other talent pool. Um, so, again, that's what we look for. We look for subject matter experts. Um, and so like, I'm not going to go find a world-class demand generator or a world-class marketer and be like, oh yeah, you were, you were making 160 K guess what? You're about, you're, you're going to have a, you're going to have an 80, 80 split now or something like that on your comp. It's like, what, what are you talking about? I'm not going to do that. That doesn't make any sense. Well, again, it goes back to risk. Like why would that person 
take on that, that level of risk. It's unnecessary um, to do, especially their later career. And again, I wouldn't, I don't know. I have access to that talent now. I can, and again, here, what's the easy part, Cassidy? Like, this is like the thing that I'm about to speak out loud. That is like, people don't want to speak always. It's like, what is harder to do to learn like some mechanics of selling or to become a subject matter expert? Okay. Sales is super tough, blah, 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 but you can learn it pretty well. Like reading a couple of books, you know, hire, you know, going to gap selling training, you know, uh, listening to podcasts, listening to the 1 billion gurus online on LinkedIn that share good content. Like you can pick up the mechanics of good selling fairly easily. That's not the case for subject matter expertise. You have to do the. You want to be a subject matter expert. You got to do the job a lot of times for a number of years. So we look for people like that. And then we, I do the easy part. I just train them to sell. I train them to book next steps. I train them to negotiate. That stuff's simple. That stuff is tried and true. There's book after book written on this stuff. Probably don't even need me at this point, right? And so I think that's like we don't like to talk about that out loud because it's like, no, sales is like this super sacred thing. And it is. It's awesome. It takes skill. It takes work. It's difficult. But it's a lot harder to do other things. And yeah, to go back to your point, it's, you're going to attract a subject matter expert to a full salary um, and then teach them how to sell. And you're not going to attract them any other way. So it's a whole new talent pool that I think is really, is not tapped at all. And I talk about this on LinkedIn all the time. Why are we hiring traditional salespeople over subject matter experts and just teach subject matter experts how to sell? I think we will see a lot more of that especially in the professional services space, but I think you'll see it bleed into SaaS more. If I'm selling at HubSpot, like why hire a professional seller? Why not hire a director of marketing who knows every, who's already used HubSpot in a role and pay him 200K? Why not? You will close more deals. Yeah, you're gonna have to teach them how to do certain things, sure, but you're gonna close more deals. Customers are gonna enjoy it more because they're gonna be talking to a peer and not necessarily to a salesperson. I don't know, I think this is a whole other podcast potentially, but there's a lot to unpack here and I think you're dead on. It opens up the talent pool when you when you change your comp. Yeah, and I mean, the, the reason you don't have subject matter experts in sales is probably because of the comp structure. Yeah, so, I'm gonna I'm fighting tooth and nail just for the next deal. I'm not spending my extra time learning how to become a better marketer so that I could sell more effectively to marketers. That's a side hustle. That's something I might do on the side. I might listen to a podcast here or there, but I'm not learning that. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, I wanna end this session by saying, Carl, you're always needed here. So Thank we you. appreciate you.